By the way, if, if you would like to sign up uh, to get uh, information about Grace, uh, you can go to our home page on the website, and there's a place for you to sign up there. It's an opportunity for you to be involved in our mailings and our information. Uh, we want you to know what's going on and be a part of all of those things. And if, if you're tuning in for the first time, it's a great way to become acquainted with grace. Secondly, I, I wanted to say a little bit about what our schedule is for coming back together for worship. I, I attended a Zoom meeting on Thursday with representatives of 25 of the significant churches in Dallas uh, area who are struggling with how do we respond to, on one hand, more openness uh, uh, with the government allowing uh, more meetings, but yet the restrictions they've laid over it and what that mean, would mean for worshiping together. And at this point, our elders are, are actively pursuing information, looking to see what other places are doing, especially areas, for instance, in Europe, where they're ahead of us to see what the results are. And, and we will keep you informed as we move forward. Uh, we know that we need to get back together. We're deeply committed to that. On the other hand, uh, safety of our members obviously is extremely important. Uh, and, and we've been told and heard that many aren't ready to come back. Even if we open the doors, there are many who are fearful. And so what we may do at some point is allow some to come back, but we're working through it, and you'll be informed as we keep up with it. Some churches are meeting next week who have been closed down, and some aren't going to consider meeting again till August or September. So there's a huge spectrum of what churches are considering doing, and we're trying to learn from them. We'd appreciate your prayers for that. Uh, because... The, as I was talking to the staff about this earlier, the reality is no one knows about this virus. Uh, there, are, there are scientific reports on all ends of the spectrum. You can find uh, legitimate articles that say the infection rate is actually much slower than we believe, the mortality rate is much lower than we believe, and then you can find other things like the instance in New York, which are frightening. And, um, but what we do know is that it, it can be dangerous, especially to our older members, and I'm thrilled to know that I'm now included in that older member section, which causes one to pause. That's always the other people, you know what I mean? But it, we're, we're trying to keep up with it. But one of the things that hasn't been talked enough about is our subject today from Scripture. And that is that while there is clearly a desperate concern over people's physical health with the COVID-19 virus, Isolation can cause its own significant problems. Uh, I looked and found very briefly three different articles uh, that express this. One is in the New Yorker, March 23rd, 2020, how loneliness from coronavirus isolation takes its own toll. Um, understanding the science helps. Loneliness is not just a feeling. It's a biological warning to signal to seek out other humans, much as hunger is a signal that leads a person to seek out food or thirst, a signal to hunt for water. In 2015, Julianne Holt-Lundsted, a neuroscientist and psychologist at Brigham Young University, published an analysis of 70 studies involving 3.4 million people examining the impact of social isolation, loneliness, and living alone. The results were notable in light of today's pandemic. The review found that loneliness increased the rate of early death by 26%. 
Social isolation led to an increased rate of mortality of 29% and a living alone by 32%, no matter one's age, gender, location, or culture. The Journal of Aging Life Care published an article by Clifford Singer on the health effects of social isolation and loneliness. And it said socially isolated men, after a study of 32,624 men, socially isolated men, those who are not married, fewer than six friends or relatives, not members in religious or social organizations, in other words, alone, had a 90% increased risk of cardiovascular death and more than double the risk of death from accident or suicide. They also had double the risk of non-fatal stroke. In other words, there is a huge, huge amount of research that proves that this isolation that we're in has significant effects. And it's not just being sad a little bit. It is significant that can lead to depression and physical issues as well which as a church that has so much emphasis in Scripture and in our history on coming together to worship and coming together for fellowship, to come together and live out the one another passages of the New Testament. There are over 50 one another commands in the New Testament. As, as a church that is deeply rooted in that, we have to be aware that this is not just an inconvenience. It has very significant consequences, especially in those who are single, and those who are isolated, especially, for instance, in senior living facilities, because of the high death rate in senior living facilities, more and more of the facilities are isolating their, their clients in their rooms, bringing rooms to the, their food to their door, and literally have them in solitary confinement. One um, octogenarian do medical doctor with a massive career uh, who's had huge impact throughout the nation told me, he said, we seniors are turning into the bubble boys. If you remember the bubble boy movie years ago of the a uh, young man who was born with no immunities, and so he lived literally behind a bubble curtain to protect him from. He said, we're that people now because there is so much fear of us being infected and die. And the problem is we were made for relationships. When you, when you read Genesis 1 through 3, uh, one of the passages that is most often quoted primarily in the context of marriage, but I think that limits way too much is when it says, the Lord says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, I get that every woman in the world understands that men left alone are a problem generally, but so that it's often used in weddings, and certainly it's appropriate because most of us men are much safer to ourselves in society if we're married. But but it's really saying something much bigger than that. And that is, we were made for relationship. Part of the argue, argument that for the Trinity is that God being love exists in three persons so that he eternally loved within himself. Uh, he, he could not have been fully God without being in three persons to live out that love between the persons of the Godhead. And when he created humanity in his image, it was clearly for relationship with him. The story of Genesis talks about the Yahweh God walking in the garden with man and woman. In other words, walking in fellowship. We were made to be relational with God. And when man was alone, God himself said, it's not good. We need relationships. And when you read Scripture, that emphasis on relationship carries out through all of the Bible. 
For instance, think of the significance of the covenant in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant, the David covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Those, those promises by God, each one is not just a social contract. It is a covenant much like the covenant of marriage, a relational promise that builds trust upon which relationships can grow. In other words, God made us for relationships, and then He demonstrated the vitality of those relationships by His covenant promises throughout the Bible. And then Jesus came to restore the relationship that was broken. Uh, Scripture teaches that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were separated from God. And, and when Jesus came and paid the price for our sins on the cross and was resurrected on the third day, he, he gave us the opportunity to restore ourselves into that rightful relationship with God, which was the intention all along in creation. So that you cannot read Scripture without seeing this heavy emphasis on it. In fact, it's my belief that the that the Genesis account of creation shows two things that God created humanity for. The first one is relationships, first with Him and then with each other. And the second one is work, to, to accomplish things together. God commanded Adam and Eve to tend the garden because we were made to accomplish things. It's a part of how we were created. So how does the church respond how do we as believers respond to this broken network of fellowship that we're experiencing today? I thought I'd start by looking at what Scripture says about these relationships because that alone could help us in discussing it. Um, and Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 is one of those places you wouldn't expect to look but talks about what we're missing when we don't have our friendships. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Pity them. And if two lie down together, they will keep warm. And how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Being alone is rough. Now, some are called to celibacy. Some are at that station in life, widows and widowers, who, who find themselves in that. And they will be the first to tell you that being alone can be hard. We, we were created to live in the context of other people. And, and if we don't have a partner that we live with, that makes the social structure that we live within become even more important. The book of Ecclesiastes, a book about wisdom, says that pity the person who has no one to turn to when things go badly. And one of the real burdens we have as a church among our staff and our leadership is those senior saints who are isolated during this time, uh, those uh, who we're having trouble knowing exactly how they're doing. And so our staff is calling. We're seeking ways to keep up so that they don't feel alone. All of us need a support network. So I chose the Ecclesiastes passage simply to put a marker in the ground that, that relationships are singularly important for the health of all people. And, and it's not just science that tells us we need it. Scripture does as well. We all long for relationships we can count on. When you read the book of Proverbs and other passages on, on friendship, one of the things you find is that uh, friendship 
by definition, is someone who loves. Both the Old and New Testament terms for a friend are rooted in the verbs for love. And and the book of Proverbs carries that step further and says, uh, a friend is someone that you can count on. They're trustworthy. They're dependable. In other words, they don't just have an emotion of love. They, They are people that you know will be there when the chips are down, exactly as Ecclesiastes is speaking. Uh, they are trustworthy, to use the term of the Boy Scouts. They, they, are, they are people that we know we can call on. So what's, what's the role of friendship in the church? We live in an era when the church has become more and more an event. Uh, Sunday mornings with um, more and more churches have, have taken on almost a an entertainment feeling, and, and that's not to take a slap at anyone. It's important that the worship, the music be done well, but when you go to a convention center and there are thousands of people there streaming in in a nameless crowd, uh, you, you get the sense that this isn't your mother's or dad's church in the Wildwood. This isn't that little congregation where everybody knew your name. In fact, there is more and more pressure for churches to become um, something different than what Scripture demands. And, and so the big churches work really hard, and some of them do an incredibly effective job of creating our opportunities for relationship within that large community. So what's that based on theologically? I'd like for you to turn to the most significant passage which speaks of your involvement in church, if you will, in all the New Testament, I think. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verses 19 through 23, you'll see why the subject he's introducing is so important. By the way, it, it's, it's fascinating to look at this because uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 or 23 mirror almost perfectly chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. In other words, in chapter 4, 14 through 16, he introduces some themes and then here he comes back and one by one repeats those points so that clearly he's completing that section that began in chapter 14. And, and the theme of that big section in, in chapter 14 and following is that we have a newer and greater high priest than the high priest of the Old Testament. Jesus has become our high priest. Uh, the book of Hebrews is, is written to Jewish people who have come to faith in the new way, Christianity, and the writer of the book of Hebrews is carefully walking them through Old Testament theology and showing them how New Testament theology completes and improves upon what God had done in the Old Testament. So Jesus is more significant. He's better than the angels in the first couple of chapters. And, and here in this section, he is greater than the high priest who is the central person of worship in all of Israel. Because you know the high priest is the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and offer the blood of the, scape, of the sacrificial goat for the forgiveness of sins for all of the nation of Israel. And, and in this huge section of Hebrews, the writer has driven home in, from multiple angles how much Jesus not only completes but improves upon the Old Testament system. Then in verse 19, he closes out the section by saying, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. See the reference to the Day of Atonement? Since we now can go into the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could. 
But, but now in the New Testament, all of us have access to the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done. And it's through a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. In the Old Testament, the holy place was divided from the most holy place by a curtain that was, I have read, as much as four inches thick. And, and the, the stained glass behind me in our worship center uh, depicts the tearing of that curtain, which was described in the Synoptic Gospels, that when Jesus died, that curtain was rent or torn from top to bottom, signifying that no longer did, did the people of God need a high priest to represent them to go before the presence of God. But as a result of Jesus, the one great high priest who had given his body by the tearing of his body, the way into the presence of God has been made complete so that all believers have access to God. It is one of the most significant theological truths, but I don't have time to spend too much on it. Uh, that new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now he starts applying it. First, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Um, Certainly, he's referring to the ceremonial washing of the Old Testament. He may even be referring to the place of baptism as a sign of the purification for a believer when they come to faith. But, but what he's saying is a result of what Jesus has done. We all have the freedom to go directly to God. So he says, draw near to God. Take advantage of that. Enter into God's presence. And do it with a clear conscience because you've been forgiven based on what Christ has done. You, you trust the full assurance that faith brings. You trust in what Jesus has done so that your hearts are cleansed by virtue of what he's done. And we have full access to presence with God. Fundamentally, that's, that's what the body of Christ is. The local church is an expression of a community who have the right to go into the presence of God, not because of our own purity, in fact, quite the opposite, but because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So, the writer is saying, if Jesus paid the price for that, why wouldn't you draw near to God? Why wouldn't you go into His presence? And, and that's why we believers spend time in prayer, time in His Word, time in quiet with Him, because it's that, that privilege of Focusing on the presence of God in our lives. Second, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised it is faithful. Uh, don't doubt that hope. Hope is faith looking forward into the future. Don't, don't doubt what he has promised, and in that confidence, you can enjoy a relationship with him. So in this first chapter, having, I mean, first paragraph, having summed up all of that truth about Jesus being the higher, greater high priest, now he begins to express the implication of that and says, it means that we as Christians should walk boldly to the throne of grace to be in the presence of God based on our faith and hope because of what Jesus has done. And, and that gives a confidence that produces a joy and a freedom of worship. 
One of the reasons we struggle with worship is uh, Satan is an accuser. We all are constantly reminded of the ways that we fall short of even our own standards, much less God's. And so it's easy for us to discount our ability to worship God freely or to be in the presence of other Christians because we idealize other Christians and think somehow we don't deserve it. But the writer is saying, you don't deserve it. That doesn't matter. Jesus has done the work to give you boldness to worship God and be in His presence. Verses 24 and 25, however, he, he brings the subject to the application as it relates to the local church and to worship together, what we need to do. And let us not consider, let us, excuse me, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. First, I just have to point out because I'm a Bible geek. In, in verse 21 is faith, in verse 23, excuse me, verse 22 is faith, verse 23 is hope, and now in verse 24 is love. Faith, hope, and love you'll find in Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 13, that pattern of that, that trinity of, of the aspects of faith in Christ keeps returning in all of the biblical narrative. But here he turns the subject more significantly to love. Because we have full access to the presence of God, we have a, relation, a responsibility in our relationship with other followers of Christ. We are called upon to consider how we can encourage each other toward love and good deeds. Warren Wearsby, one of the great old preachers of the 20th century, I got the chance to meet him. He spoke for me at a banquet down in Houston one time. He was desperately funny and, and a wonderful expositor of Scripture. In his book on this passage, he says, Notice not a single thing about why we should be involved in worshiping with others has anything to do with whether we're happy or not. The whole emphasis is we are called to come together not for what we can get, but for what we can give. We come together to encourage each other, to spur one another on, first to love. Functionally, the beginning point of what happens when a body of Christ comes together is to walk in the context of love. First, love of God in our worship, and secondly, love of others in our fellowship. If the Jesus' summary of the, grand, of the commandments of the Scriptures go back simply to loving God and loving others, then it's important that we live those out in the body of Christ. And, and we sing together in worship. We pray in worship. We, we do all the things that we call worship as an expression of our love for God. But notice that Christianity is not a private faith. You sit alone at home and absorb the love of God. Uh, in light of what Christ has done for us, the command to us is that we come and encourage each other to love. That, that the church is an active organism. It's, it's not a spectator sport where we come and grade the music and the sermon and go home and, and forget about it. It is instead a, a fellowship, a relationship with a body of other believers where we gain access into each other's loves and lives and encourage each other to love and to do good. Uh, he, he sees 
the local church, which is a local expression of the universal church, he sees the community of believers as, as being a boiling pot, if you will, where we come and in that activity, that intensity of energy, we learn how it is to love people that are different from us. We learn what it is to live out love with other Christians in the community. But then we also uh, live that love actively out in doing good for the sake of others, first in the body, but out in the world as well. The, the church is, has never been intended by God to be a spectator sport, a passive thing that we come and absorb some energy and go home to make it through the week. It is intended to be a living group of people who are intensely focused on what Jesus has done as our great high priest and because of that impacting each other. God's intention was not that we come to church to grade it but that we come to church to be motivated to love and serve better. To be made uncomfortable if you will because when you see you don't love as well as you should you're uncomfortable. When you see you're not serving the way you could, you're made uncomfortable. We, we come to church in the context of trust and faith to learn how to be better. Uh, see, the currency of relationships is trust. Uh, the friendships are rooted in trust. The people you consider your best friends, the people that the book of Proverbs discusses as the true friends are those people who are faithful that are trustworthy. And, and trust is earned by a pattern of faithfulness over time. In other words, uh, all of us who are beyond adulthood have, have learned that people saying they're trustworthy is not necessarily meaningful, but we look out of experience for those people who have demonstrated their trustworthiness. And God understands that because, as I mentioned earlier, all of Scripture is an ongoing demonstration of the trustworthiness of God. That He keeps His covenants. That, that He loves His people. That He's faithful because God wants us to trust Him. So He demonstrates His love in this, that He gave His Son on our behalf and He lives out the promises in our lives. So, we are called as the church to be a place where there is enough trust that out of faithfulness where we stir each other up to love and do good. Which implies, by the way, that, that a church can't do its work in one Sunday. A, a church does its work when you gain access into the community and you live it out and prove yourself faithful and find out the faithfulness of others. The intention of God is that the local church be a place where that faithful covenantal love of God is expressed in the dependability we have in each other. And one of the things that we seek to do at Grace is to live out that faithfulness. Bill Bryan and Mike Fisher, the two pastors previous to me that I have known, were both men who were passionate about being faithful lovers of God's people. But the pastor's not enough because everybody can't know the pastor. The, the, the intention is that we create a community where that kind of faithful love uh, becomes a reality. That, that we demonstrate love, we encourage love, 
and, and, and by that culture create a motivation to be dependable in the lives of others and demonstrate love by doing good for others, both here in the community as well as in the world around us. Verse 25, he anticipates the problem. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Throughout the history of church, there have been some who have given up on fellowship with other believers. And, and quite frankly, on one level, it's understandable. Especially today, we live incredibly busy lives. We are pulled on from every direction. Uh, I was shocked when I realized that all the youth sport leagues now have games on Sunday morning because, quote, no one has anything to do then. I mean, there are huge pressures on families away from worship and, and being a part of the body of Christ. And, and, and I understand when you hear that idea of taking a Sabbath, getting dressed and going up and being around other people in the idea of rest. What you really want to do is just, just stay at home and be relaxed. So there has always been a temptation to stay away. Then, then when you've been in church and, and you've found out that Christians disappoint you, countless is the number of people who have turned away from active worship in church because a pastor didn't live up to their expectations. And certainly sometimes that's very fair, sometimes it's not fair. But, but the reality is the expectations placed on pastors has disappointed many and caused them to stay away from worship. And I suspect even a greater number have, have experienced the disappointment of the local church members that they were sick and no one called or, or someone hurt their feelings by what they said or they overheard gossip. Or we, we humans have a limitless capacity to disappoint each other. When it, when it comes to disappointing other people, uh, we are high achievers. And in the local church where the, we intuitively understand the standard is so high, it's easy to see how people would just not have the energy to go. So even here in the first century, some were already in the habit of forsaking the fellowship. But we need to go because we need to encourage one another. The word encourage is interesting. It is the same word group that is used by Jesus in John 14 and 16 to describe the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete. We are called to encourage one another in the same sense that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would. And it's my personal conviction that while the Holy Spirit certainly works in unseen ways in our lives, He, he speaks to our hearts and our emotions in ways that aren't visible or demonstrable, I think the primary way that the Holy Spirit works in the body of Christ is through other, other believers. That the Holy Spirit, as we all live out the fruit of the Spirit, and do what God has called us to do and, and stir each other up to love and good deeds. As, as we become a community where we're in submission to the Holy Spirit and living that out, that's how, more often than not, the Holy Spirit encourages believers to act. In other words, I don't believe 
you experience the full ministry of the Holy Spirit in isolation. I, I believe that that's why there is, there are the gifts of the Spirit. They are the means by which the Holy Spirit equips and uses each one of us, what? To make us feel better about ourselves and feel important in the church. Heavens, no. But instead, to serve other people. And when we do that, we are the means by which the Holy Spirit does His supernatural work. And sad to say, too many of us come to church looking for someone else to bless us when someone sitting next to us is desperately in need for the Holy Spirit to speak through us. We're called to be paracletes, encouragers to one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, all the more as we have this conviction that Jesus is coming back. In effect, the writer of Hebrews is saying, heavenly days, the Lord is returning, returning. Get busy doing the very things that he's called us to do as a church. That is to love and serve each other, encourage each other to be what God called us to be. Colossians 3, 15 through 17, another passage that is used about the local church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or do, deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God for the Father through him. The Apostle Paul has the exact same theme, that as we come together as believers, we are instruments of the divine work of God to hold each other up. And one of the ironies is when we isolate or when we come to church just to be served and we don't do what we're called to do, we dry up. And then when we stay away, we allow ourselves only to be influenced by the world. You ever thought about it that way? Uh, most Christians come to church at most once a month. Well, we... We've checked it through the years, and on average, our active attenders come two Sundays a month. Um, but others come several times a month, so some just come once a month. I don't know what it is. We don't keep roll, and I don't want to know because it's not my job to judge people. But just think about this. This give you the benefit of the doubt. The most people come one, uh, twice a month, two times in 30 days. The other 28 days, who's the influence on their lives? Whose voices do they hear? Now, granted, they may have private devotions for, say, 30 minutes a day. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that through the course of their day, they've marked out 30 minutes to pray and read Scripture and, and talk about spiritual things with someone they love. And then the other, what? How many waking hours that the primary messages we hear are from the media and from those around we work, whom we work. In other words, we, we are inundated with messages of the world. And, and we're torn down by it. We're tired. We're discouraged. We feel the weight of just trying to get by. And God intends for the local church to be that place where 
because we're all actively living out the love of Christ in each other's lives. We encourage each other. Now, I know what some of you are saying. What a stupid thing to preach when we can't come together. That, I mean, that couldn't be more, well, what would you expect of me but to do something like that? Let, uh, let me land the plane on this idea. I'm praying that because we're separated, we have all gained a new awareness of how desperately we need the body of Christ. I'm praying that because of this time of isolation, when we, Zoom is not fellowship. It, it's, it's a Zoom meeting is a good thing, but it isn't the same thing, is it? I'm praying that as we work through this time, when we come back together, we'll have a new vision for what church attendance is for. That, that we'll have an expectation that we go to, to be instruments of the Holy Spirit as we encourage each other to love and do good. And that in our giving to others, we will show ourselves faithful to them so that people learn to trust the body of Christ and have the security of, of fellowshipping in a loving and safe environment. And not one that's pretend or all about social niceties, but one that is reality trustworthiness. In other words, it's, it's truth trustworthiness where people can speak truth to us but we know it's out of love so that they're the faithful wounds of a friend. I'm praying that we will come back chopping at the bit to live out what God called the church to be. And that there will be a new vitality at Grace in our worship, in our adult Bible classes, in our small groups, in all the ways that we serve, that we will see a new vitality that comes from loving faithful service because I believe until we give ourselves to that we won't experience all that Christ and the Holy Spirit the triune God intended for the body of Christ but we're, we're experiencing the absence of seeing friends and laughing and slapping each other on the back and telling stories and maybe hugs or handshakes we're, we're, we're missing the surface level of fellowship, but I'm praying that because of this, we begin to miss that fellowship that God intended that makes people better. That's my prayer. Don't forsake coming together to worship, but instead, uh, draw near to God. Hold unswervingly to the hope and encourage each other to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Father, we confess that in reality, we all know what it is to live in isolation. Sometimes it's done because of our own failings. Sometimes it was circumstances. But all of us have experienced times of isolation. And, and it can be okay for a time, but over time, solitary confinement is what we do to our most hardened criminals. It's a punishment, and it's hard. And we thank you, Father, that your intention for us is for something much better, and that is that we are a part of a community that expresses your love as demonstrated in the cross as we come together and love each other and serve together and make each other better. And Lord, I pray that we would have an, a new conviction 
to live out your commands for the body of Christ so that we would be a faithful testimony of what love and good deeds really look like when empowered by the Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.